This is the SF Productions Podcast Network. How I Got My Wife to Read Comics Episode 604 Can a comic book collector of over 30 years get his wife to read them? Will she let him keep them? Learn more in this podcast. Let's go to the comic book lounge with Mindy and Mark. We have entered the new golden age. Superman has an ominous anniversary. And how many ones are there? This is how I got my wife to read comics for Sunday, November 13th, 2022. I'm Mark. And I'm Mindy. Just a reminder, you can go to sfpodcastnetwork.com to get the feed, other SF podcasts and blogs, and subscribe via your favorite podcast catcher and maybe find somewhere to leave us a review. You can email sfpodcastnetwork at gmail.com, like us at facebook.com slash sfppn, follow us on Twitter at sfppn, check out Instagram at sfpodnetwork, or call us at 614-321-9737. That's 614-321-9SFP. The New Golden Age by Johns Lieber, Ortoregui, Ordway, Nock, Meyer, Boyd, Filardi, Calise, and Herms. The formal reintroduction of the JSA and Earth 2's heroes into the DCU. We begin 10 years from now, and a girl named Helena playing with her friends in a wintry school recess. She gets them all to make snow angels, but hers seems to resemble a bat or a cat. Her internal monologue talks about the stranger, a mysterious man who keeps popping up in the background of her life. She lived in fear until she decided to fight back. 1940. The original JSA has a group photo taken in front of the famous table. Al Pratt, the Golden Age Adam, Wesley Dodds, the Sandman, Jim Corrigan, the Spectre, Jay Garrick, the Golden Age Flash, Carter Hall, Hawkman, Kent Nelson, Dr. Fate, Alan Scott, the Golden Age Green Lantern, Rex Tyler, Our Man, with Johnny Thunder behind the camera. Al presses Kent to reveal how many kids he will have using his mystic powers. Kent demurs, Naboo's magic is not to be used for entertainment, then mumbles, at least one. Alan also demurs as he doesn't want to get into his personal life. Green Lantern is gay and in the closet in the new continuity. When Al asks for info on Jay, he gets a vision of children lost along with the stranger in the middle. There's a massive feedback in Kent's helmet. In 3022, a group of heroes finds the long-lost JSA brownstone. Future versions of Green Lantern, Dr. Fate, maybe the same one seen in the recent LSH reboot, and the Atom. The stranger sneaks up behind them and snaps the neck of Dr. Fate, explaining, It all starts with the death of Dr. Fate. There's also something about redemption. Back to 1940 and Kent recovering. The others reassure him that they will help each other, but Kent explains that what he saw was a blind spot and that something is watching them. In 1976, Dr. Midnight gives Dr. Fate a checkup after a battle. This is during the 70s run of All-Star Comics. He explains that he sees visions of someone named Salem. Star-spangled kid and Power Girl race in ready for the next fight. They're also tired of being treated like trainees. Kent explains that they want the next generation to be ready to take over. And then today, 
Caleb, the current Dr. Fate, and Detective Chimp are tracking down Dead Man in order to find out about the new spirit in the helmet. They try to get in a mystic bar, but a humanoid bear is the bouncer and demands that the chimp wear shoes. Caleb is taken over by the helmet and sees a terrible vision. Back to 3022, the others attack the stranger and are quickly wiped out, and so falls another JSA. Back to 1940, Alan and Derby, a.k.a. Doiby Dickles, Green Lantern's wacky sidekick, are walking down the street. He's considering opening up to the other JSAers. Then they see a newspaper headline. The Red Lantern burns Navy ship, dozens dead. The Soviet, he's back. We see the stranger in the background. 1951, the JSA is being grilled by a Senate committee who demand to know their secret identities. Roy Thomas used the template of the House Un-American Activities Committee to explain in continuity why the JSA disappeared. They refused to identify themselves and just retired. Back to 10 years from now, Helena has a knife under her pillow ready to stop the stranger. She hears a noise downstairs, sees an intruder, and stabs at it. It's Batman coming out of the grandfather clock from the Batcave. Bruce cleans up his wound in the kitchen, and Helena asks, Does Mom know? Thirteen years ago, so 2009? Dr. Fate breaks in on Catwoman during a robbery. She's about to steal a cursed ring. Selina shoots her whip around Fate's helmet. There's an explosion, and we get a double-page splash of numerous Fates, all dead in an Escher-esque tableau with the stranger in the corner. The helmet comes off, and Kent warns her that her daughter will join the JSA and die with the rest of them. She scoffs, family's not in my future. Back to Helena and Bruce ten years from now. Bruce shows her the cave, which includes the snow globe from Flashpoint Beyond and a female Joker card next to the one we know. When Helena sees all the Robin costumes, she asks why they agreed to join him. And at that moment, Selina storms in. They promise never to expose Helena to this after what happened to Tim, Stephanie, Damien, and the Joker's son. Selena threatens Bruce that she will take Helena away where he will never find her unless he retires that night, and he agrees to do so. The stranger watches. It's almost time, Helena. In 1848, Corky, the kid member of Rip Hunter's team, is talking to a teen with the name of John. John will assassinate the president unless Corky does something about it. A time bubble pops up and Corky is told to get in now. John is left with one thought. The whole world's going to know my name. In the time stream, they're searching for members of the 13, more on that in a moment, who were lost before they could be reintegrated into the time stream. They must find Dryberg before his biological parents do, Mime and Marionette from Doomsday Clock. Their new baby has the symbol of Dr. Manhattan on his forehead. We also see Ozymandias fangirl from the end of Flashpoint Beyond, along with Pink Tiger Bubastis. Eighteen years from now, Helena hears Selena say, Oh, God, no. Now, Detective Chimp and Dr. Fate have found Dead Man, who suggests they find someone more experienced with Egyptian gods. Thirteen years ago, Selena sees the future in the Cursed Ring. Eighteen years from now, Selena learns that Batman is dead from the now-aged Alan, Karen Starr, Power Girl, Dr. Fate, and Judy Garrick, The Boom, 
Helena vows to find his killer as the huntress, whether my mom wants me to or not. Wow, that's a lot of table setting. We can assume the stranger with his black clothes and red hair is Perdegaton, a major foe of the JSA with time travel abilities. We know the two titles are coming out of this, a new JSA series and a Stargirl miniseries focusing on the lost children. Speaking of them, DC helpfully put together a set of Who's Who pages for The 13. Who's Who was a series of comics and actual cardstock, I have both, explaining all the characters of the DCU back in the 1980s. For these brand new characters, it even lists their first appearances in a real comic, which will confuse the hell out of collectors in the future. The Golden Age Aquaman, first appearance in More Fun Comics number 73. As expected, this is indeed the character from the 1940s, the son of scientists who thought they had found Atlantis, but actually an abandoned outpost. Their unnamed son somehow gained Atlantean abilities while living in their underwater lab. Underwater breathing, superhuman swimming, enhanced strength, but couldn't talk to fish. He was mostly a recluse, refusing JSA membership, and only briefly in the All-Star Squadron, composed of basically every hero from the Golden Age. He spent some time post-war as Adam Waterman, a normal college student, before disappearing back to the ocean. Betsy Ross and Molly Pitcher, a.k.a. Betsy Rose and Molly Preacher, First appearance in Military Comics number 6, in costume in the next issue. Don't go looking for it, you won't find them there. Two girls inspired by Golden Age heroine Miss America from Quality Comics, which DC purchased at one point. After she stops a saboteur at their school, they investigate and stop him from destroying the Statue of Liberty with Miss America's help. She's so impressed with the girls that she gives them historic relics. Betsy gets a spool of thread from Betsy Ross, Molly the Pitcher from Molly Pitcher. Somehow, these items give them powers. Betsy can fly, she has strength and speed. Molly can create weapons and even flash floods. The girls vanished the day World War II ended. Cherry Bomb, a.k.a. Gloria James, first appearance in Police Comics, number 25. Gloria's father worked with Roy Lincoln, a.k.a. The Human Bomb, as a chemist. Dad is killed by criminals, and Gloria learns Roy's secret. She agrees to keep it secret if she's allowed to help find her dad's killer. Roy refuses, and Gloria attempts to recreate the formula that created the human bomb. She's too successful. Her powers kept growing despite that fibro-wax suit, like human bombs, designed to control it. The power, as you might have guessed, is the ability to create explosions without hurting themselves. Gloria disappeared while Roy tried to cure her. The Harlequin's son, a.k.a. Michael Maine, first appearance in Infinity Incorporated number one, Harlequin was Alan Scott's nemesis. They sometimes had a bat and cat thing going. The father is unknown. Michael grew up with his grandmother as Harlequin is either on the run or in prison. In his 20s, Michael was assaulted at a gay bar so he used his mom's illusion-creating glasses and made his own costume to track down his attackers. One of them is shot, actually shoots the other in a fight, and Michael is blamed. So he turns to a life of crime while pursuing an acting career. He would go on to play Carver Coleman in a biopic about the life of the actor who played Nathaniel Dusk. (laughs) That's a... (laughs) That's a mouthful. 
Michael would later be asked to join Infinity Incorporated, but he declined as he had already retired his role. He reappeared during Crisis on Infinite Earths and Dark Crisis, protecting citizens. John Henry Jr., also known as John Henry Irons, first appearance in DC The New Frontier Number 1, the great uncle and namesake of John Henry Irons, a.k.a. Steele, he watched as a small boy as the KKK burned down his neighbor's house. The dad, John Wilson, was the only one to escape the blaze, but when John and his older brother told the cops what had happened, they blamed the dad instead. Soon after, a vigilante wearing an executioner's hood with two large hammers appeared, waging a war against the KKK. It was the dad, of course. He was murdered during the fight, and the cops covered it up until reporters got a hold of it. The story became an important story in the civil rights movement. Later, Henry was approached by an old man and given one of the hammers with orders to find the last of Wilson's killers. He did so, then disappeared a week later. The rest of the family moved to Metropolis, and his older brother had a family, including Steele. The Boom, a.k.a. Judy Garrick, first appearance in Flash Comics number 10, In 1963, Jay and Joan Garrick's daughter, having gained super speed in the same manner as her dad, exposure to hard water fumes, I assume that's not the kind of hard water you call the Culligan man for, accidentally went back to the 1940s. There, she became Jay's sidekick, initially not knowing she was his future daughter. That was just so like the Flash TV show. Uh She stopped doing this once he reached 1949, the point where she was born. At one point, the son of villain the Turtle became enamored of the boom and tried to assist her when his dad committed a crime as the tortoise. Generally, he would end up creating more of a problem. As of this writing, no one remembers the boom's birth or existence. Ladybug, a.k.a. Rosabel Rivera, first appearance in Hit Comics number 1, number 5 in costume. Part of an immigrant family who worked on her parents' honey farm. Local DA Rick Raleigh had a mysterious interest in bees. He was actually Red Bee, a quality comics character. Her dad was secretly helping train his crime-fighting bees. When gangsters tried to extort the family business, you're pretty low on the gangster roster if you're upping up a honey farm, Red Bee stopped them. Roosevelt became a huge fan of the Red Bee and later stumbled on his hideout. She got exposed to a device from one of his enemies, which shrunk her to the size of a ladybug. Red Bee reversed the effect, but she found that she could shrink and grow at will. So she made a costume and became his sidekick for a short time before vanishing. Her powers also included human strength at her small size and some flight ability with bug wings she created. She became good friends with the bee Michael, who lived in Red Bee's belt buckle. At least the bee's name wasn't Eric. Eric the Hoffa-Bee. Red Lantern, a.k.a. Vladimir Sokov. First appearance in Green Lantern number 1. Born to a military family before the Russian Revolution, he went on to join the Red Army and became a decorated soldier. When GL appeared, the Soviets worked to create their own version, similar to what they would do in the 80s with Rocket Red. Their labs discovered a mystic crimson flame and made a lantern to tap into it. Vladimir was given a red ring and worked for the military as their first superhero. GL and RL, of course, became enemies as their powers, apart from the hue, were identical. Vladimir was an assassin for the Soviets, but despite that, 
Green Lantern and Red Lantern worked together once to fight Nazis. His daughter, born in 1951, inherited the power of the Crimson Flame with glowing red skin. The Ruskies took her away for study, and Red Lantern wiped out the lab before being killed himself. His body, ring, and lantern were never found, and his daughter's fate is unknown. The Golden Age Mr. Miracle, a.k.a. Thaddeus Brown. First appearance in Mr. Miracle number 1, 1941, a comic that doesn't exist. As a homeless boy in San Francisco, having run away from an abusive uncle in New York, he came upon magic performers as he studied sleight of hand, illusion, and escapology. He came up with the name Mr. Miracle and performed on street corners, eventually joining a circus. That's where he met the man who would become his assistant, Oberon, a dwarf. He also met allies there and would later form Justice Society Dark. Their exploits are mostly unknown with the exception of a 1945 event called the Storm of Sin. Decades later, Thaddeus would train a young Scott Free, having come from Apocalypse, who became Mr. Miracle No. 2, and even later, Shiloh Norman, Mr. Miracle number 3. Thaddeus also taught a young Bruce Wayne in the art of escape. Thaddeus was killed by gangster Steelhand, although some believe his death was faked, including his son, Ted. Quiz Kid, a.k.a. Raghu Sisaraman, first appearance in Sensation Comics number 2. Orphaned after his parents died in a fire, Raghu found a book of trivia which became his obsession. He competed in trivia competitions, with one interrupted by villain Spirit King holding kids and judges hostage. Mr. Terrific arrived and saved the day, staying to declare Raghu the national champion. A friendly trivia battle between the two ended after 12 hours in a tie, with Terrific declaring him the smartest boy in the world. Raghu became his sidekick with a Playfair sash. Terrific wore a fair play belt. His photographic memory extended to copying any fighting style once he saw it. In the middle of a tough case, the disappearance of Betsy Ross and Molly Pitcher, Ragu disappeared as well. Salem the Witch Girl, a.k.a. Salem Rula Nadir, first appeared in More Fun Comics number 56. The daughter of an Armenian immigrant to the U.S. and a woman who fled the mystic Limbo Town, she was abandoned by them at age six to avoid the Limbo Town curse. Any female who left there would cause bad fates to happen to anyone they grew close to, anything from stepping into a puddle to getting hit by a bus. She lived on the streets of Boston until she encountered Kent Nelson, a.k.a. Dr. Fate, who took her in despite her protests. He was immune to the curse, and Salem became his arrogant sidekick. Fate took pains to keep her away from others as she cursed them otherwise. Kent's girlfriend Inza almost died due to it, and Salem ran away after that. Despite Justice Society Dark's help, they never found her. Salem had vast magical powers but could overextend herself, she also had a cat familiar named Midnight and a fussy broomstick named Sweep. Legionnaire, a.k.a. Hmm? This entire entry is redacted. All we get is a silhouette of a guy with a legion ring and a time bubble. Now, people online are saying this is per degaton, but we'll see. All of this is Jeff Johns at his Jeff Johnsiest, accessing the far corners of DC history while tying in various events. We have callbacks to Doomsday Clock, Flashpoint Beyond, Dark Crisis, Batman Catwoman, Bendis' LSH, as well as various points in JSA continuity. 
It's tied to Earth Zero, the main DC universe, which begs the question, what happened to the Robins? Sometime in the next 10 years, something terrible will or might happen to Tim, Stephanie, and Damien. The Death of Superman 30th Anniversary Special by Jurgens, Breeding, Ordway, Grummet, Stern, Guise, Simonson, and Bogdanov. The event that facilitated the downward trend of the comic book industry with the bagged covers, armbands, multiple fake-outs, etc., gets the creative band back together to tell tales of that day from different points of view. The Life of Superman sees John Kent, back when he was still a kid, learning about Superman's death at the hands of Doomsday. Clark and Lois had apparently kept this from him. How? But it came up at school on the anniversary of the event. Meanwhile, Superman is helping to clear the rubble of a building that was torn down the night before when Jimmy runs up and shows him what might be a sighting of Doomsday. After school, John confronts his mom about what he learned and we get a lesson on the whole thing. Meanwhile, Clark is attacked by some creature, then meets up with his family in his civvies as he investigates a hole in the street. What appears to be Doomsday comes out of the hole and there's a big battle. Turns out to be a worker at the construction company that was cleaning the rubble before and who years earlier had taken a doomsday bone home as a souvenir. It infected him, and now he's what John calls Doombreaker. Perry is impressed with John's headline naming skills. The battle rages on, and Lois finds the bone in the guy's apartment, and Clark vaporizes it, changing the guy back. John hands Clark back his cape. Above and Beyond sees Ma and Pa Kent watching the doomsday battle on TV. They distract themselves by looking over scrapbooks of his adventures, which becomes a clip show. We also learn that Ma has clippings she never pasted in a book, those of Clark acting as a super courier of organ transplants. Standing guard sees the Guardian, Jim Harper, acting as security at Cadmus as the battle rages. He realizes he needs to join the fight. Finding rubble of a nearby town, Superman asks him to take care of Maxima, gravely injured in the battle. There's a huge explosion, and Guardian wakes up to see the telepathic image of Dubalex, an alien at Cadmus. They meet up and head to Metropolis, only to arrive as Superman dies in Lois's arms. Later, at the coroner's office, Guardian waits with Metropolis PD, only to learn that the Cadmus director intends to swipe Doomsday's body. Guardian and the police prepare to fend him off. Time sees John Henry Irons on his way to help Superman waylaid over and over to save civilians. He holds up walls, helps to move a truck out of the way of an ambulance, rescues civilians from a building that's falling apart. John also gets there just as Superman dies. He's asked to help other people nearby, and he walks off to do so. By the way, there's a 30th anniversary facsimile edition out there with a similar cover, so make sure you get the right one. And speaking of The One... The Ones, number one, from Dark Horse Jinx World by Bendis, Edger, Diaz, and Reed. What would you do if you were destined to be the chosen one? Would you embrace it, ignore it, avoid it? That's the story going on here. A guy at a drugstore is accosted by fans who have realized he's the same guy who at birth was the chosen one. The guy just wants to buy his lotion and leave, but they won't let him go. He screams at them and storms out. Meanwhile, a Buffy-esque woman kills a demon, although she refuses to believe in such things to the incredulous reaction of her friend. A man stops them and gives her a mysterious invitation. Meanwhile, another woman is being blackmailed by her business partner who wants her to sell the company to him. 
He has intimate pictures of her with a woman and plans to show them to her wife. Unfortunately, it is her wife in the pics. Oh, I was kidding. She goes up to the roof, turns into a superhero, and flies off, only to be called by the guy with the invitations. Meanwhile, a guy is walking out in the street when the same man appears, along with an older bruiser who accosts the guy. Both of them turn out to be chosen ones. Dr. J. Max, protector of extra-dimensional mystical threats, which have never happened, and Thrace, a man with a huge sword. It's convenient for the guy handing out invites. Cut to the group all meeting together. We also meet Ava, who thinks she got an invite by mistake. The guy with the invites explains that there is a once-in-a-forever event has just happened, and there was a prophecy to get them together. The event? The spawn of Satan has just been born, so I guess they have to kill it as a baby? The superhero immediately leaves, while the others ask how this guy knows about all this and what evidence he has. Since the kid is a baby, it's suggested by Buffy's buddy that they can wait until it's a teenager and see what happens then. Six years later, they're in the middle of a huge monster battle. Well, you were way off, lady. Next issue, how many chosen ones does it take to kill a baby Satan? Announcer Bot, how can the folks find us online? Go to sfpodcastnetwork.com to get the feed, other SF podcasts, and blogs. Subscribe via your favorite podcast catcher and leave us a review. You can email sfpodcastnetwork at gmail.com. Like us at facebook.com slash sfppn. Follow us on Twitter at sfppn. Check out Instagram at sfpodnetwork. Call us at 614-321-9737. That's 614-321-9SFP. Back to you, Mark. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.